0: Been walking through the story of Exodus, where we've learned that God has heard his people's cries as slaves in Egypt. God has raised up a deliverer in Moses, and God has fought mightily against the Pharaoh through ten rounds of battle with the ten plagues. They've been bloody rounds, but after the death of the firstborn of Egypt, Pharaoh has finally yielded and let. God's people go. And we will be picking up in in chapter 13, verse 17. And as we read it, you'll notice two big points. First, God's peculiar, peculiar dealings with his people, that he provides a peculiar path of deliverance, a peculiar equipping for battle, and by peculiar, I mean strange, odd, unexpected, But secondly, you'll notice God's peculiar call to his people, a call to do three things. To fear not, to stand firm, and to see God's salvation. And peculiar has a second connotation, meaning exclusively belonging to. And so this call to fear not, to stand firm, and to see God's salvation belongs exclusively to God's people who belonged to him. So let's turn to chapter 13, beginning at verse 17. And please follow along as I read. I'm going to divide this passage into two sections, reading the first section, then commenting, and then the second. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness." And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiraf, between Megal and the sea in front of Baal, Zephron. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? And so they made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took six hundred chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army. And they overtook them and camped at the sea by pi in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, "Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to bring us, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you while still in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness." I want to make a couple notes before we continue with the rest of the story. First, notice that God did not take Israel along the expected path to the northeast. Instead of taking Israel from Goshen to Canaan through the land of the Philistines, the shortest path of about 250 miles, God led his his people southeast into the wilderness toward the Red Sea. What is going on? Why is God leading them into the wilderness? It's a very peculiar path of deliverance. Why is He not taking the direct route, the expected route, the easy route? Well, God has something bigger in view that Israel did not see. And the text gives us three hints that God had bigger plans than what anyone could perceive. The first hint comes in verse 19. As Israel is leaving, Moses takes the 400-year-old dry, dead bones of Joseph out of Egypt. Why? Well, like Israel, Joseph's story was filled with unexpected twists and turns and betrayals. And while a very frustrating and bewildering journey, God proved faithful and good to Joseph at each step along that journey. Life had taught Joseph that God would fulfill each and every one of his promises, so Joseph made the sons of Israel promise. He said, when God visits you sometime in the future, take my bones out of Egypt. Now Joseph had no idea that that would be 400 years later. He only had several pieces in the puzzle, but he was able to discern that God had a bigger picture And Joseph learned to wait for God's big picture to be revealed. And he knew that his story would not end in Egypt. And of all people, Joseph learned that God always fulfills his promises, just not in the way we might expect or think. So that's the first hint that God was up to something bigger than the Israelites could perceive. Moses taking Joseph's bones out of Egypt in fulfillment of God's promises to Joseph. The second hint that God had a a bigger purpose than we can sometimes see is in verses two through four, where not only is God leading Israel in an unexpected direction into the wilderness where they're wandering in a dangerous place, a, a desert, a rocky place, but God is also leading them into a desperate situation, a situation where they would be pinned against the sea, trapped, They would be easy prey for Egypt, literally a sitting duck. But through placing Israel in this desperate situation, God would bring a bigger deliverance, not a smaller one. For God would provoke Pharaoh and his army to chase after Israel and making Israel vulnerable, Pharaoh would think that he could have them back. But God would get the greater glory and Egypt would know that the Lord was God. And Israel would enjoy total freedom, never having to look over her shoulder again, fearing that the enemy would show up someday, somewhere, at some time to try to grab her back and abuse her again. And so we see here that God is like a a grand chess master, right? God's Moves are not always easy to understand. It certainly wasn't easy for the Israelites to understand. What he was asking them to do was was counterproductive, but God was up to something bigger. He had the long game in view. And as we see that end game, we see that each and every move that God makes with the Israelites and with the Egyptians is always for his people's good. It is always the wisest and best move. So that's the second hint that God is up to something bigger than we often perceive. And then there's a third hint, and it comes in verse 18 of chapter 13, and we know God must be up to something bigger because the verse makes absolutely no sense if he's not. Let me read it to you. Verse 18, but God led the people around by way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle equipped for battle? Really? Did I miss something? Israel had their flocks and herds with them. Yes, they had plundered the Egyptians of gold and silver, but when was the last time that a gold necklace proved to be an effective weapon against an army? There's no mention that Israel had any time to make weapons nor any mention that they plundered the Egyptian of weapons. And there's no mention that they ever had any time to train for battle. Israel left Egypt in such a rush after the Passover so quickly that God told them, make bread without leaven, for it won't have time to rise. Clearly, the Israelites were not driving out of Egypt in chariots or riding on horses. They were men walking out with their wives in hand, their children in their arms, which just added to their vulnerability on any battlefield. So how exactly is Israel equipped for battle as they went up out of the land of Egypt? Is this biblical sarcasm? On the surface, sarcasm appears like a, a more likely interpretation for this preparation, at least on the surface, seems to fly in the face of common sense. So the question is, how in the world is Israel leaving Egypt equipped for battle. They seem anything but prepared for battle. In fact, they are much more likely to run from battle than to engage in battle. Look at verse 17. This is exactly why God does not lead them by the way of the Philistines, although that way was much nearer. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Even when God looks at his own people, he he sees fear, not faith. He anticipates that at the threat of war, the Israelites would change their minds, buckle at the knees, and voluntarily return as slaves to Egypt, which is exactly how Israel responds the very minute they see Egypt marching after them. Look at it in chapter 14, verses 11 and 12. I, I just read it. They're talking to Moses and they say, is, there, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What, what have you done to us? in bringing us out of Egypt, is this not what we said to you? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than than to die here in the wilderness. And yet somehow, these very same people, God is saying in verse 18 of the same chapter, they went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. I find that remarkable, incredible, literally unbelievable. So, what are we to make of this text? This is a peculiar equipping indeed. No weapons, no training, no standing army, vulnerable uh, families with children in tow, weighed down with gold and jewelry, slowed down with flocks and herds. You'd barely be worse off sending the sick and elderly into fight. And yet, God's Almighty declares Israel went out prepared for battle. Now, some preachers might be inclined to ignore inconvenient verses and skip right over them, trusting that many churchgoers just don't pay that much attention as they're reading the Bible or they won't ask hard questions. But we are not such a church, are we? And I'm not such a preacher to ignore bewildering verses. And it is our habit here at Westminster to push into areas of confusion, to address directly what seems contradictory, because... As we do, we often find that that's precisely where God's word proves most powerful. So let's lay out a starting assumption. Here's a safe bet. If God's word doesn't make sense, the problem is not his word. For it is the word of an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, and perfectly faithful God of the universe. And so if there's a problem, the problem lies in our understanding or our interpretation. So if God said that Israel was equipped for battle, then they were equipped. The question is, how were they equipped? Obviously, their equipping was not according to our expectations. When an American soldier is stuck behind enemy lines with nothing but his satellite phone, it would be easy to assume he is a lost cause, outgunned and outnumbered. All that the eyes can see is one against many, an entire standing army. But what the eyes do not see is a small drone hovering several miles overhead. Nor the integrated satellite system, nor the aircraft carrier anchored several miles out to sea with a nuclear payload capable of leveling the entire nation, nor the GPS-guided missile able to deliver a bomb to any given window in any given building of any given city. And so an American soldier stuck behind enemy lines without so much as a pocket knife while he appears completely vulnerable and unprepared for battle. As long as he has radio contact, he is thoroughly equipped for battle. And the same thing is going on here in Exodus 13 and 14. Israel is equipped for battle not because they have weapons or training, but because they have a connection, a covenantal connection to the strongest warrior king who carries quite a payload, one capable of leveling any stronghold, one capable of targeting any enemy precisely without causing any collateral damage. And that's exactly what God does here in Exodus 14. He prepares his people for battle by sending them into the wilderness with one thing and one thing only – a covenantal connection to Him. And as long as they have His ear, His backing, His support, they are prepared for any enemy and any battle. So how does this apply? If you are walking in relationship with the God of the Bible, if you have entered into a covenant with Him, saying, I am yours and you are mine, if you are a citizen of His kingdom, if you are a soldier of Jesus Christ call in the big guns call in the big guns where are you situated behind enemy lines feeling exhausted weak vulnerable and helpless call out to god are you behind enemy lines at work with your boss or with coworkers are you behind enemy lines at school with your classmates or doormates or or roommate or with an antagonistic professor, maybe even in your family with a neglectful spouse or a child that has cut off all communication. If you are feeling overwhelmed and outnumbered, vulnerable, hopeless, and helpless, call in the big guns. Call out to God. Only he is capable of delivering a payload that can penetrate the deep bunkers of any hardened and cynical heart. Only he is capable of protecting you and vindicating you. Don't place your ultimate trust in human weapons, whatever that human weapon may be. Whether it's better argumentation or more education or, unfortunately, too many of us result to this, emotional manipulation. See, none of these things carry the payload of God's Spirit who can work through situations you and I would never conceive as possible or workable. Remember, if you are on the ground in the battle, whatever your battlefield, you have a covenantal connection to the God of the universe who rules over the billions of stars in our own galaxy. And if you are there on the ground So is God's kingdom. He is at work at your school, in your office building, and at your next family reunion over Thanksgiving. He is at work using your efforts, your words, your prayers, not because your words are powerful or your efforts are all that remarkable, but because He is powerful and He delights to work through His people who are His mouthpiece, His hands and His feet. When we are covenantally connected to him, we get to see God work in quite unexpected and explosive ways as we call in the big guns. So the first point here is is that God has peculiar ways, doesn't he? He calls Israel to take an indirect and hard path into the wilderness rather than the easy path. He equips them for battle. Not by giving them weapons and training, but oddly enough, just giving them access to his unseen power. But my second point is, is God has a peculiar calling to his people, a call to do three things in battle. To fear not, to stand firm, and to see God's salvation. Notice, we'll pick up where we left off in chapter 14, verse 13. It says this, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Fear not, stand firm and see God's salvation. That's the battle plan. First, fear not, picking up in verse 14. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel, Go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. See, God removes every reason Israel has for fear by promising to fight on behalf of his people. So no matter how bad it looks, no matter how weak you feel, no matter how outnumbered you are, God is saying, fear not you're not. Notice in verse 14 and 15, he asks, why do you cry to me? And then he tells Israel, you only have to be silent and move forward. If it hasn't already happened in your life, you will soon discover that life's battles will cause you to dissolve into tears, leaving you paralyzed with fear. For most of us, that's already happened at some point in our lives. And apart from God's intervention, that's where any of us would remain. But thankfully, we have a God who intervenes to sustain and to deliver us from our greatest fears. What does this mean? If you belong to God, fear cannot and will not ultimately win in your life because our God will not allow it. Notice in verse 12, God intervenes despite Israel's paralyzing fear and grumbling. He doesn't wait for them to overcome their fears before He acts. He acts despite their fears, and then He calls them to action. And it's God's promised action, not Israel's fear, that is the central and controlling issue here. Notice in the text that in the heat of battle, God doesn't stop and and counsel them through their fears. There's no time for that. And besides, that would provide fear too much power, too much credibility. Instead, what does God do? Well, he commands them, set aside your fears, move forward in faith, Now, there's no doubt that Israel's faith was not strong. It was weak and full of fear and complaining, but it did not need to be strong because God was strong to deliver, and it depended on Him. What's the main point? If the Lord is with us, we never need to fear because God fights for His people. But if we do fear... God can and often does act despite our fears. He need not wait for us to master our fears before he acts. However, he will call us to only be silent, to stop speaking our fears, but to silent our fears and then to move forward. How does this apply? What fears are you facing right now in your life? Fear of sickness, possible death, Fear of loss, loss of reputation or loss of security or, or loss of, import, of an important relationship or, or loss of certainty. Maybe a fear of failure. Like the Israelites, do you feel trapped by your situation, surrounded with no discernible path of escape, maybe desperate that your fears are winning? Maybe you're surrounded by tragedy. I know many of you are overwhelmed with depression. I just returned from visiting good friends of mine this afternoon who lost a baby after 8.5 months of pregnancy. It was stillborn. And I wept with them, and they are overwhelmed with fear, trapped, terrified. What do you do when there's nothing more you can do? Worse yet, what if like the Israelites, the main thing you've done up to this point is counterproductive, worry and complain and dissolve into tears? What if like Israel, you've accused God of abandoning you and your leaders of deceiving you or of being ignorant and just foolish? What then is there left to do when you've messed up so royally? There are two things that God asks the Israelites to do. He says, only be silent. Stop speaking your fears and move forward at my command because God is always able to cut a path of deliverance even though you may not see that path ahead. You only see a stormy sea. This was the life lesson of Job. And Job said in Chapter 28, verses 7 and 8, God's path may be a path that no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Sometimes we cannot perceive God's path of deliverance, and when all seems lost and we're, we're surrounded with no discernible path of escape and we are desperate. That is precisely when our God is in the habit, in the habit of opening up a path of deliverance. He did it for the Israelites in the crossing of the Red Sea. He did it for Joseph. He did it for Moses. He did it for David. I could go on and on throughout the Old Testament. But he did it most powerfully in the person and life of his son Jesus Christ. Never was someone so surrounded with no discernible path of escape than our Savior as he hung on a cross, encircled by all the powers of Rome and Israel, literally pinned against a raging sea of anger, nailed to a piece of wood, engulfed in death, buried in a tomb of rock. With no discernible path of escape, yet God opened a path through Jesus' resurrection, a path that no eye had seen and no foot had trodden. And deliverance comes like that in sometimes the most unexpected ways because that is who our God is. So, how might that work out for you? I want to be clear here because I don't want to give false promises. Deliverance doesn't necessarily mean that your physical life will be preserved or the physical life of your beloved will be preserved. Jesus' life wasn't preserved. He died a terrible death. But we must remember that was not the end. A hidden path to the greatest deliverance opened up after death. Deliverance doesn't mean that your marriage will be restored as you fantasize about. God may do that or he may provide a different type of deliverance that you do not see or cannot grasp. Maybe it's a deliverance of peace that passes understanding even as you remain in a hard marriage. Maybe it's the release of a biblical divorce, maybe vindication and justice, or maybe a repentant spouse that will turn back to you and be reconciled Deliverance doesn't necessarily mean that all will go as we expect. But we can trust that our God is good and true. And he can open up very unexpected paths of deliverance that actually give us more, not less. And that glorify him more and not less. And we cannot know the paths of deliverance until he opens them. But open them, he will, because he is a God who fights for his people. He tells us only to be silent and to move forward. And as we do, he parts the sea. So fear not. Instead, stand firm. Look at verses 19 and 20. Then the angel of God who was going before the hosts of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the hosts of Egypt and the hosts of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night with one co- without one coming near the other all night. Notice in this passage, God doesn't just call Israel to stand firm, but God creates space for them, a safe place for them to stand firm. He, he guards them from behind and then he pierces their darkness with light. God gives them the very power to do what He's calling them to do, to stand firm. And God is not calling them to do anything strange. This is exactly what He calls His people to do over and over again. And so, if God is calling you to stand firm, know that you are not being called to do something strange. How does this apply? When we're called to stand firm, that means don't run and it means don't lay down. On the one hand, don't run. See, when we feel trapped and we feel stuck and afraid, the hardest thing to do is not run. Like a claustrophobic, we panic and we flail. Imagine the Israelites attempting to run. Where, where could they run? See, sometimes the situation is is so desperate, there is nowhere to run. And if they ran, they would only run in circles, chaotically and the only progress that they would make is progress toward exhaustion and injury. But see, it's only natural to run in panic and confuse activity with progress. And so we must be discerning when God is calling us not to run but to stand firm, when there is no place to run but to stand firm, to stand our ground, to not go anywhere but to trust that He and He alone can fight for us. But notice at the same time, on the flip side, he says, don't fall, don't lay down, don't give up. The second hardest thing to do when you're surrounded and overwhelmed is not give up. Not refuse to move. Imagine if Israel had fallen down on the ground like a child in a snit, having a temper tantrum, pounding on the ground, not even looking up and seeing God has already parted the seas. Now let me be clear, sometimes God calls us to run. He always calls us to flee sin and temptation. He always calls us to turn away from wickedness. He calls us to go and make disciples. But there are times in life when God gives us no space to run, not in a meaningful way. And it's at those times when he's led us into the wilderness and when we're hemmed in all around. And we are not there by choice. We must remember, Lord, you led me here. And so you must not be calling me to run but to stand firm in you and your promises. Maybe you're being attacked by false accusations and slander. Have you ever noticed it's really impossible to defend yourself? And sometimes you just have to stand firm and pray. Maybe you're being manipulated by someone in power who you cannot avoid, whether at work or at home. And so you must stand firm and pray. Maybe you suffer from mental illness that you cannot get away from. So you must stand firm and pray. We must do what God calls us to do to stand firm, for God will empower us to stand and give us the space to do it. and we must not throw ourselves down in temper tantrum. And then lastly, as we stand firm, we will see God's salvation, and this is the rest of the story. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, verse 21. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and went in after them into the midst of the sea, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. And in the morning watch... The Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. And so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters turned and covered the chariots and horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptian, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. See, God's salvation came in the most bewildering yet fantastic manner. Glorious and terrifying. He drove back the sea. God could have saved in many ways. He could have struck the Egyptians with blindness or disease or dysentery. He could have allowed Israel to take the normal route to Canaan, maybe raise up regional powers who shared a common enemy in Egypt and would become allies with Israel and and care for them as refugees. And if I were an Israelite, that would be what I'd want God to do. And I'd be asking, why must I go through the sea? Why not, around? why not around the sea, Lord? Are you asking that question about anything in your life? You're staring at a sea saying, Lord, can we go around this one? But often that is not how God does his best works. It's not wrong to pray for less fantastic deliverance. I pray, God, give my children a boring testimony. <laughs> But sometimes that's not how God works. God gives us a fantastic story and a fantastic rescue because sometimes he just has bigger plans for his glory and for our salvation that we might see his mighty power, his all-surpassing wisdom, and his steadfast loving and his unending mercy. And as we fear not, as we stand firm, we will see the salvation of God, which is always greater. Maybe it's to give a greater legacy. Had God God not saved Israel in this way, we might not be talking about it thousands of years later. And maybe God is doing the same thing in your life. Because He loves you and wants a great legacy in your life, he He is causing you to face the sea rather than go around it. Maybe it's because he wants to give you a greater freedom, a total freedom, so that you don't have to keep looking back at that which once enslaved you. But you can be totally free. And so he's going to cause you to go through the sea, which is dangerous and terrifying and hard, rather than around the sea. Or maybe it's just to give you a greater hope. See, God showed he had the power to free no matter how determined the enemy is no matter how desperate the situation, no matter how helpless the victim, no matter how defiled and dehumanizing things can get, that he can fully restore, fully restore and bring total victory and a clear path to a brighter future. And so we simply must wait and look and see God's salvation. And as we do, it will lead us to do one thing, And it's what the Israelites do next in chapter 15, which is they sing about the story that God wrote. The situation they just went through that we read about in narrative form, they put to poetry and and the entire chapter 15 is a song of praise of, look at what God has done, throwing horse and rider into the sea. And likewise, we will retell our story not as a simple narrative, but as a glorious song of praise to the one who delivered us. Let us pray. God, you certainly do work in peculiar ways, often taking a peculiar path, circuitous, one that does not go as we expect but takes us into the wilderness, one that takes us through the sea, not around it. And you equip us in a peculiar way with your unseen power, which only reemphasizes our weakness and our inability and, and our desperate situation. God, you give us as your people a special calling, a, a peculiar calling, that though we live in a fallen and broken world filled with sin and temptations and trials, you give us every reason to fear not, to stand firm in you and your presence and in your promises, and to wait and see your salvation. Oh, may we heed your peculiar call to fear not, to stand firm, and to wait and see your salvation. May we do this for your greater glory and our greater joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.